Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Every person who comes to you does not always fully invest themselves in being free from their problems. Now, I am not suggesting that they are insincere. What I'm talking about is the complexity of some of the issues and the accompanying heart entanglements that have become part of a person's life for so long that the habituation strength over them is actually more powerful than the motivation to change. Just because they share their trouble with you does not mean that they will put in the effort to change. The unchanging person is a common occurrence, whether it's in the counseling office or any other discipleship context. And there are reasons for it, and it is worth our consideration. Hello, everybody. I am Rick Thomas, and we're doing Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. You can find me at our team and our community at lifeovercoffee.com. I want to share with you a non-exhaustive list of why some people do not change. In fact, I'll give you seven reasons. And if you want to find this content on our website at lifeovercoffee.com, just look for seven reasons a person will not change. Let me begin by sharing something that Jesus gave us out of Luke chapter 14, verse number 28. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. I think it's important when we're talking about personal transformation or if we're trying to help someone to change that we talk about, we need to count the cost. The number of people who want to change is smaller than you may think. Did you know that? Sometimes we forget it as we make our appeals, especially to those people that we love the most. I would imagine that most every one of you have a family member, someone close within your community sphere that you would love to see to become unhooked from some kind of problem, but yet they are not changing. Some of these people may even be saying that they want to change but there are reasons that they are not. They want to live a different life. Often they choose what is familiar because change is hard. And that may be the bottom line. To change is difficult, especially if those problems have been life-habituating patterns that have been going on for a long time. It's like trying to lose weight or trying to quit smoking. What about overcoming fear? What about overcoming anger? What is that one annoying thing that you want to change but have not been able to kick the habit? How many of us have tried but found the discipline to rid ourselves of our pet addictions more challenging than we first perceived? A lack of change is a common occurrence among fallen souls. And if you do not understand why, You can become frustrated with people stuck in ruts. That's why I like what Paul said in Galatians 6 so much. He said, if any person is caught, any person is captured, maybe you could insert the word addiction here. If any person is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them. Here it comes in a spirit of gentleness. 
Our responsibility is to water and plant, knowing that no matter how complex things are, God's grace is sufficient for anyone to mature in Christ. There are no problems that are beyond grace's scope. To say or to think that my set of issues is different from someone else is denying the power of Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, his mediation. Imagine trying to persuade persuade Christ with an excuse for not changing. I mean, what could we say? If we could step into the future just for a moment and we're talking to Christ in heaven about why we couldn't change, would we say something like, well, you know, your grace was not enough. Perhaps we could say, well, it would help if you did more. How about this one? I'm different. My situation is unique. Now, let me go ahead and put a pen in all of those and say that none of them are recommended. My unwillingness to change is always because of me, not because of Christ, or not even that woman that God gave me. He has provided for me all I need for living a godly life. At some point, I have to realize that any lack of change in me is a matter of personal choice. Caveat, assuming the thorn is something that he wants me to change. You you have to footnote what I'm sharing here, and I don't want to run too far into this footnote, but I do want to pin this on the wall, that there are some things that will never change, and there are some things that God does not want to change. The thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 is an illustration of that, and we also know that we're not going to be sinlessly perfect some of us will struggle with deficiencies. Some of us will, will struggle with our incompleteness for the rest of our lives. But it's through that weakness that God's strength can be perfected. So that's the footnote. That's the caveat. I don't want you to use that as an excuse. Some people will say, well, God doesn't want me to change. Well, maybe we should put that forth into the community, a competent community, and let them speak into that. Maybe that's true, and this is an unchangeable situation. But if I choose not to change the changeable, then I must explain or I must examine my excuses. And so I want to share with you seven reasons that have kept me from maturing in Christ. Maybe none of these things relate to you, but perhaps maybe one or two of them you can identify with. And if you can identify with any of these seven, well, praise God, and maybe he will use this to prompt you, to motivate you, to move deeper into transformation. Now, not in any particular order. And again, as I said at the top, this is an inexhaustive list, and so maybe you want to add a couple of things that I do not mention. But number one, I'm problem-centered. The gospel is the power of God for salvation and for sanctification. But problem-centered, problem-focused people do not perceive this the way that they should. Though the answer is right before them, they can be reluctant to submit to God's wonder-working power. 
Through the years, the Lord has sent me a few problem-centered people who did not want to change, and though they would not they would not say that they had decided not to change, they did not want to change. They were these, the glass is half empty people. That's all that they could see. If you ask them how they were doing, they would give you a list of their problems. After a while, the temptation would, would be to grow weary of them. There's a few folks on social media that when they comment, as soon as I see their names, I know what they're going to say. I, I know what they're going to say as far as the theme of whatever their comment may be. It's going to be cynical. It's going to be pessimistic. It's going to be negative. It's going to fit within the problem-centered bucket. I am sad for them. I'm not sure if they have the self-awareness to see this. I would hope that someone would know them well within their community that could speak to them about how they speak about their life and the situations in their life. They are the glass is half empty people. Grace and gratitude were not part of their everyday speech. It didn't matter, it doesn't matter what you say or what angle you take with these people as you try to turn the conversation toward Christ and toward his grace. Their problems are always too big, and God's solutions are always too small. One of seven reasons that people do not change, I am problem-centered. Number two, it's my identity. People stuck in a rut for an extended period can find their identity in the rut. Now, we see this phenomenon in our culture every day. The person who is uncomfortable in their own skin and so they begin to take on a new identity that may be even contrary to biology and contrary to the Bible rather than changing. And in many of these cases, they do not know that there is an escape route. They do not know that there is a Christ. And so what they do is they choose, choose an identity that is comparable to their internal disorderedness. I was talking to a man who had a foster child. The foster child hoards his, his few belongings in his room while choosing not to play with the other toys that his foster parents have provided him. This kid has what I call a squalor identity, which is all he knows. It has been his only life. He does not think that Holding on to a few broken possessions tenaciously is odd for him. It's his identity. If he continues to live in a fear-based thinking, a squalor identity after becoming an adult, he will entrench his identity into self-captivating thought patterns. A life of freedom and hope and peace and joy and grace and security may be good ideas for others, but it is not for him. A second of seven reasons why people do not change is that it becomes their identity. One other story here. I was counseling a young man several years ago. He was a teenager, and he told me sometime during our time together that he visited a friend of his, an overnight stay with a friend. And as they were getting ready for bed, he noticed that his friend's parents went into uh, the bed, their bedroom together, the master bedroom. And he asked them, he said, why are they going to bed in the same room? And, well, his friend explained to him, this is what a husband and wife does. 
This boy had no concept of that because he had never seen his parents sleep together in the same bed in the same room. They had two different rooms, two different beds. They lived separated lives. There are many ways that we can pick up habituated thinking, that we can develop an identity, that this is who I am and this is what life is for me. And so we don't want to dismiss it or roll our eyes as, as though that these people who live differently from us are really different from us because they're not. We're all cut from the same Adamic cloth, and you never know what someone's experience may have been. It could be the boy who was reared by parents who lived separately. It could be the boy who came from a squalor mentality. It could be the individual who is has a disordered soul, and they take on an identity that they have learned from social media and the evangelists out there on those platforms. Number three, I want the quick fix. One of the most common themes I have seen with unchanging people is their desire for an easy path forward. It's like the guy who joined the fitness center in January and by April you couldn't find him with a radar. When some people find out what is involved in the change process, they balk at the opportunity that the gracious Lord holds out for them. It's sticker shock. You see, we live in a drive through pill-centered culture where everything has to be instant. If I'm not interested, I'm not interested if I can't be instantly gratified and satisfied. That's almost the mantra that they say. Sanctification is a cross and a death, not an easy street. Being holy will cost our lives, which does not sell well in suburban America. Sin interrupts the movers and the shakers looking for a quick fix to keep the dream alive. Sanctification by the sweat of our Browse is passe. Legitimately stuck individuals may want to be free, but many do not want to pay the price. It shocks their souls when you tell them about the cost of discipleship. You can have what you want, but you must die first. Now, this is what Jesus has taught us throughout the four Gospels, like John 12, 24, for example. Except the grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bring forth much fruit. A counter-worldly message. One of the ironies of this type of worldview, this easy fix instant gratification worldview is that they will do whatever it takes in an area of their lives where they want something bad enough while there seems to be some kind of amnesia. No persevering grace when it comes to their sanctification. What I'm saying here is that this is not an organic problem for 99.9999% of the people. No, this is a non-organic, a spiritual problem, meaning that it is repentable, meaning they can change because they have proven that they have perseverance, that they have discipline when they want something bad enough. In Luke 14, 27, Jesus said, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The third of seven reasons that a person will not change, I want the quick fix. Number four, I like my sin. Now, we know there is a form of perverse pleasure in sin. If there were no pleasures in sin, we would not like it. I eat ice cream. 
because I enjoy it. I like pizza, too. I'm not too fond of mayonnaise because it's a sin to eat mayonnaise, and it also tastes terrible. Our ultimate loyalty is to ourselves. We're not motivated to choose things that we perceive to be unfulfilling for us, unsatisfying for us. No, we, per, we, we pursue what we perceive to be pleasurable. If a person continues to select a sinful habit or a sinful lifestyle, it's because they find at least a modicum of pleasure in that thing which is a pleasure that is always greater than a desire to change. They may lament their sad circumstances and even be telling you the truth in their lamentation. The quiet part that they probably won't say aloud is how much they love their sin or the thing that has entrapped them. For example, the habituated angry person can talk at length about how bad his anger is and the devastating effects of his verbal rants on others. But there is more to the story. You see, he chooses sinful anger because he has learned through years of habituation that it works for him. It gives him what he wants. Is this not what James was telling us? What causes quarrels? What causes conflict? Why do you get angry? And then Brother James answers the question by saying, Is it not this you desire? You, you covet? You have passions? Know what the angry person won't tell you in his lamentation about how bad this is, is that there is a pleasure in it. The choice of anger entices him to choose it as a better option rather than doing the hard thing, which is exercising self-control, which we find embedded in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. We do what we want, making the angry guy no better than the cracked addict, making the angry guy no better than you and me. We just choose the drug that we want to get what we want. And so reason number four of seven, I like my sin. Number five, I fear freedom. Some people's habituations keep them in bondage for so long that they find a, a twisted comfort in their prison of pain. My brother was like this. He went to prison when he was 17 years old. He was released three times. Each time he was released, he would, he would do something illegal to go back. He became an institutionalized convict. The prison was his home. He learned the system and became comfortable with it. People in stressful long-term situations, they may whine, lament about their problems, but can also be fearful of living a life free from what they have always known. The world was a big and scary place for my brother. He could not control it. Now, that is a key term there, control. That is a self-reliant instinct gifted to us by Adam. He could, not, he could control prison life. He was not afraid of incarceration. He was like the trapeze artist who had to let go of one person to grab hold of another person. There is always a moment when he would be holding on to no person. He chose never to let go of what he had, of what he could control. Institutionalized convict, 
a self-reliant instinct that is part of all of our lives. We need to be in control of something, even if that something is detrimental to our souls. A fear-motivated person stuck in dysfunction is not likely to reach out and grab God's hands to be free. He will choose to keep hanging on to what is familiar, never able to fully realize the freedom that is just beyond his fingertips. Reason number five of seven, I fear freedom. Reason number six, I like attention. My friend's wife committed adultery. She eventually left him for another man. Without question, it was the worst season of his life. He spent several years spiritually wandering through confusion and discouragement. I distinctly remember when God's grace was becoming more real to him during that time, and it appeared that he might pull through the ordeal. As things began to change for the better, another kind of struggle crept in. It manifested. It sounded something like this. If my friends see how much better I am doing, they may leave me alone. I do not want to be alone. The loneliness of being alone is eating away at my soul. I will be measured. I'm going to be cautious about how I communicate how I am doing. I do not want to lose the attention that I am getting. You see, their attention is all that I have. It feeds my desire for someone to love me. Many people knew about his marriage problems and some sympathized with, with him. He already felt ostracized because he belonged in a legalistic community that distanced itself from divorced people. Losing his wife was unbearable. But the possibility of his friends not giving him any attention was terrifying. His heart was hurting and plotting. You can feel the pain of what was going on in his heart, and you can see the perverted deception that was entangling his heart. He did not want to trust God to be his only comforter. He preferred to prolong the perception of pain with superficial, caring friends. Lying was better than saying he was okay. He did not want to be left alone. He was like the uncoordinated kid on the sixth grade basketball team pleading with the jock, pick me, pick me. Do not overlook this perverted possibility with unchanging people. We all want attention. We all want accolades. We all want somebody to pat us on the back. And we typically disdain isolation, even to the point of using pain to create a community of friends. If your troubles can only garner attention, then troubles may, becoming a, may become a way of building a community. People like this can be manipulative in managing and maintaining their tribe. They can also wear out their welcome. In the counseling world, we call them professional counselees. They're forever talking about their problems, but never changing. They like the community that they have, and if they changed, they would lose the counseling relationship. They would be out in the world like the rest of us. If you pulled back the cover of the heart, you might find someone getting their approval drive stroked by their sadistic relishing in their problems. Re reason number six of seven of why someone will not change is I like the attention. And then finally, the seventh reason a person 
will not change is, I am not honest. Now, this last group may be the most common. There are many reasons for being dishonest. By the way, if you roll back through the previous six that I just gave you, all of them have a component of deception to them. But do not be surprised by a person's ability to spin the truth. After you work through the deceit attached to the reasons that I just shared to you, I want you to consider another purpose for lying. They are vetting you. They are, they are vetting you, and so they are withholding the truth. Counseling is a context where people tell many lies. People lie to me all the time. I've written an article that's somewhere on our website. It's titled something like, Counseling is a Lying Profession. It is kind of sadly humorous at this point in my life. It used to bother me when people would lie to me, but I understand I understand my lying profession more as I have grown older. People are scared. They do not know if you can handle their truth. Thus, they incrementally reveal more and more about themselves. They may even get to the point to where they do not reveal what they need to reveal. And so whether they are creeping up on being more truthful or get to the place to where they're just not going to tell you anymore, there is deception in there that you will not be able to intuit. I mean, you can't know what you don't know. I remember counseling a young lady who presented herself as a single person. After about two months of counseling, she said she had something she wanted to tell me. Now, I thought a couple of things. I, I thought she was going to tell me that she had an abortion. That is a common thing that a person will not reveal, and it makes complete sense why they would not the first time or the first three times they meet someone because there's so much shame and guilt attached to it, and they want to vet you to make sure that you're able to handle the weightiness of this truth that she's carrying in her soul. Another one would be sexual molestation. And so I asked her, I said, what do you want to say? And she said that she was married. In our first meeting, she said she was single. The whole time, I believe she was a, a single lady, and I counseled her accordingly. I would have never guessed in a million years that this lady was married. She was secretly vetting me. She told me so, not in those words, but that's what she was saying. She needed to know if she could trust me with her secrets. And if I would not, if I would not stir, steward them well and, and not judge her as I was bringing biblical help to her. And so the seventh reason that somebody might, might not change is they're not being honest with you. If you'd like to read what I just shared with you, again, go to lifeovercoffee.com and, and look for seven reasons a person will not change. You can read the full-length article. You can listen to the podcast. You can watch the video. Choose which one. And by the way, as always, we request that you share our resources with 1,000 of your closest, most intimate friends. Let them know about Life Over Coffee, specifically here, seven reasons why a person will not change. Caring for people takes a lot of biblical character, capacity, competence, courage, and compassion. Why am I using those words? Well, those words encompass our training. We have mastermind students. There are people that have come to us, and they want us to teach them in an all-online 
training course. And these are the five things that we are assessing through their two, three-year training regimen. We want to assess their character, their capacity, their competence, their courage, and their compassion. Because if you're going to care for people well, all five of those things are hugely important. We must maintain our biblical equilibrium while emulating the disposition of the Savior. Everybody is not mature or wise enough to filter through the excuses that people use for not changing. And if you're not careful, you can be impatient with someone. That is self-righteousness, by the way. I talked about character number one. Well, self-righteousness is an anti-character element. And if we're not patient with someone, we are elevating ourselves above them Impatience, by the way, is a form of anger, looking down on them. It takes a lot of maturity and wisdom to filter through the excuses, and being impatient is one of those things. And so I trust that these few insights have helped you. Now, to aid in that, I also have a few questions and thoughts that I, I hope they will assist you in your ongoing reflection about what I have shared. Number one, will you pray? asking the Lord to help you care for others with the patience and compassion of Jesus. Maybe even writing out the prayer and possibly sharing your prayer with another friend as you talk about uh, what you have just heard here. Number two, will you offer a prayer of gratitude for the privilege of bringing the gospel to those in bondage of sin. One of the greatest pleasures in my life is to be able to serve the body of Christ by bringing resources, content, by bringing help to them. And every now and then people will come back and, and, and they will talk about uh, how God is, uh, has used this work, these resources in their lives, and it is a great privilege. And I know that you have had that experience as well. It would be a good time just to offer a prayer of gratitude for that individual that God has, has used you to impact their life. Number three, will you ask the Lord to help you guide people through their excuses for not changing? Now, as you make this third prayer, perhaps there is something that you could do to gain more insight, to gain more courage to serve the unchanging person in your life. And so as you Ask God to help you uh, to guide people through the excuses of not changing. Maybe the Spirit of God will identify something in you that needs to change, and maybe God is using the unchanging person in your life as a means of grace, as an instrument of righteousness that is pinpointing something in you that needs to change. And if that's true, ask Him to help you. Number four. Will you be as patient with others as God is patient with you? I, I, I contextualize this in my salvation experience. It took me 25 years before I became a Christian. God was patient with me for a quarter of a century. Then he imposed himself in, into my life and regenerated me, and I was born again. The kindness and the forbearance and the patience of the Lord led to my repentance. And we want to emulate this as we help others. What do you need to change to emulate more patience in your life toward a particular person that you hope 
that God will change. Now, it could be probably for most of us that person that we want to see change is somebody in our family and definitely someone who's very close to us because these are the people that we will become most impatient with quicker than anyone else because we have invested more time in them. And if they're not changing according to our timelines, then we will become more impatient with them. Will you be as patient with others as God is patient with you? By the way, you can also add here, you do have an addiction. We all do. You may be the person that has a hard time overcoming fear or worry or fear of man or anger, or maybe it is something more externalized like alcohol or some other uh, physical addiction. Will you be just as patient as God is with you? Number five, as you have reflected on these things that I've been sharing were you primarily thinking about yourself or someone else? That's a trick question. I trust that as you've gone through these lists of seven things and been thinking on all the complexities uh, in them and the interrelated issues that are tied to them, that you've been thinking about yourself first. That's where we want to start. But as you have reflected on these things, were you primarily thinking about yourself or someone else? And if you've been thinking about someone else, would you take the time to answer? Why did you answer that way? Again, the title of this is Seven Reasons a Person Will Not Change. Please take advantage of this resource and please share it with others. By the way, if you do struggle with fear of man, meaning that you're overly managed by the opinions of other people, we have an all-online course. It's called No More Fear. You can find it at lifeovercoffee.com. And I would encourage you to take the course you can do it in your home. You can do it in your coffee shop. Again, all you need is the internet, and you can really take advantage of that. And maybe that will help you to unsnap, uncouple, disconnect from the fear of man, peer pressure, codependency. Rick Baca, a uh, supporter of our ministry, has he was just talking today how God is using that course to, to help him. And there are several other people that have communicated similarly. And so maybe no more fear would be the course for you. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.